This week, we are going to continue through Matthew. We are just getting too close to, you know, halfway through chapter 12 now. Thus far, kind of the last couple weeks, we've been talking about yokes, the you know, yoke that goes over your back. Jesus had a discussion with the Pharisees about, you know, the difference between the Pharisee and the yoke, or the, the yoke of the Pharisees, or kind of we talked about some analogous yokes today, and the yoke of Jesus. And then last week, we looked at some examples, both from the Old Testament that Jesus highlighted, and current acts Jesus and his disciples were doing to highlight, well, the yoke of the Pharisees, the yoke of modernity, it's really just about pressure. It's about you're responsible for your own salvation. Good luck. Whereas the yoke of Jesus is about love. It's about compassion. It's about Jesus saying, no, you absolutely cannot do it on your own. That's going to be impossible. So let me do it. That's what we're doing on. Now, at the end of last week, we had this ominous line that the Pharisees, after Jesus has this discussion, they were mad. And it says they went away to plot to how to destroy Jesus. Now, why are the Pharisees so angry? We hit on it a little bit last week. They're angry because what Jesus is trying to do is shift a power dynamic. In a situation like this, where you have a minority group in power, and a large group being oppressed, Jesus is coming in trying to bring this group up, trying to give freedoms to this group. This group doesn't like that, because from their perspective, that's losing power, that's losing things. So they're fighting back, they're angry. We're gonna see a little bit just how that goes. So let's go through our passage. So we're gonna just pick it up immediately afterwards. So Jesus aware of this, the this he's referring to is the Pharisees leaving to plot to destroy him. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets." A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So, let's kind of start from the beginning, walk through this, kind of unpack what's going on here. Starts out, Jesus, aware of this, we talked about that was the plotting going on, withdrew from there. Now, it's interesting that we don't know where Jesus goes which is actually rather unusual for Matthew, because Matthew is the gospel that is most concerned with geography, that you can map almost out exactly the route Jesus goes, the places he goes, because that's an underlying theme. It's highlighting what Jesus is talking about in certain locations are really meaningful. But here, Matthew's just like, he withdrew from there. Because it doesn't matter where Jesus is going at this point, it's just, He's pulling out of the situation, out of this conflict that is happening. Now, despite all of this, despite the big conflict going on, and I think I want to touch on something real quick here. When we read these passages about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we have a very negative view of them. They're not very well portrayed. But at the time, most of the people liked them. They were the most popular group with the people even though they were the groups oppressing the people. People as a whole, 
respected, and liked them. So the fact that these groups are painting a negative picture of Jesus, are trying to destroy Jesus, and yet the people are still seeking Jesus out, says a lot. There's a real dynamic at play here. So despite everything going on, all the controversies, all the conflicts going along, the people are still coming to Jesus. They're still finding Jesus. Jesus is withdrawing to secluded places. Jesus isn't out in the open right now, but yet people are still finding him, coming to him. Or are they coming to him to, to be healed, to heal the word? Jesus is still continuing his work in this quasi-isolation. He's still continuing the work he was sent for, healing, telling of God, telling of the good news. But we get this interesting line here that he tells them not to make him known. Why? We'll just say, we don't have a 100% answer. There is no, like, this is why Jesus said this. So we have to kind of speculate from a story perspective. Is it possibly to keep his location secret? Because he knows there's a big group of people trying to get him. So is it a, well, just from a practicality standpoint, I need to kind of be hidden right now from the authorities from Rome. Is it a not wanting to stir the pot situation? Is it a, well, you know, when I'm out in public, things get riled up, revolts start to potentially happen. So I'm going to kind of seclude here and don't tell people, just it's, it's not time yet, right? A, a lot of time it gets talked about as a timing aspect. Is it Jesus knowing, it is not my time yet to go before Rome, so I need to kind of pull back and don't tell them where they am. Is it, there's another passage, we talked about this maybe three or four months ago, where Jesus kind of does the same thing, tells them, hey, don't tell people what's going on here. Is it a, I don't want the controversy around Jesus to overshadow the message of Jesus? Is it that? We don't know. The, the gospel does not tell us, but for whatever reason, any, all of those, Jesus does not want his location to be known right now to the authorities, to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to Rome. As we move on, this was to fulfill the prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and I will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So this is from a passage in Isaiah. Lauren read a kind of extended version of it a little bit ago. This is one of the most well-known passages in Isaiah. Sometimes this is called the servant passage. The idea behind this section is this is God describing his ideal servant, his ideal person, which, reflecting back, we know it's talking about Jesus, but it's talking about who is this perfect follower of God? Who is this perfect servant of God? What are their characteristics? What are they supposed to do? Describing Jesus. Now, verse 18 here, the first part of it, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard that before? In Matthew. Can anyone think? Does that sound familiar? Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, when Jesus goes into the water, you know, the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, it's, there's an interesting distinction here between son and servant. In the Isaiah passage, it's talking about servant. Here, it's talking about son. That's a whole theological discussion, a, a rabbit trail we could go down. We don't have time to do that today. But it's setting up this foretelling, this prophecy side, hitting 
pulling that Isaiah passage into Jesus' baptism. And we get another line here. This baptism symbolism is strengthened. I will put my spirit upon him. And what happened at Jesus' baptism? Dove showed up. The spirit of God descended like a dove onto Jesus. Now this is important. But not for this section. This is an interesting setup here. Matthew is setting something up that's going to pay off in a couple, probably like 10 verses or so. So take this, take this disciple, not discipleship, this baptism scene, this beloved, the Spirit of God being put on Jesus and just squirreled away in your head. It's going to come back and be super important in a couple weeks. So that's what Matthew's doing, just, just setting it up. But this section here, as we start to get into some stuff, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. It is this proclaiming of justice that is really getting Jesus into trouble. This is why Rome and the Pharisees are really upset at him. So, I mean, if Jesus had just come in and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, uh, but everything's fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. This, this, this system's great, but I'm your Messiah. I'm going to die for you, and we'll just kind of keep doing it. The Rome... The Sadducees and Pharisees, they're not going to have a problem. They're going to be like, yeah, cool, perfect. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes in, kind of looks at the system around, and is, well, okay, everything you're doing, okay, cool, but why is that person being ignored and oppressed? Why is that person being excluded? Why are you not caring for the people over there? Jesus is coming in and pointing out the massive flaws, holes that's going on in their system, pointing out the hypocrisy in the system. Proclaiming justice to the people oppressed by the system. I feel like I'm rattling an awful lot. Let's move that up there. Let's see if that's better. Um, so this, the, the, the yokes we talked about, now I feel like I'm too quiet. Eh? How's that? Eh? Okay. Jesus is getting this idea, reminding us of the yokes, you know, using that analogy. The yoke of the day is not a yoke of justice. It's a yoke of oppression. And Jesus is coming in, talking about his yoke, a yoke of justice. So that's what's getting him into trouble. That's what is stirring the pot right now. That is what is upsetting so many people in power. So how is Jesus to do this? We will continue, and you'll see. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, he will, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Yeah, okay. What's going on here? But obviously, this is not 100% literal. The, his, no one will hear his voice in the streets because Jesus was out talking in the streets. That happens. What this is getting at, it's hearkening back the idea of the Old Testament prophet. The person out in the streets yelling, proclaiming the word of God. The person that is frantically running around talking, yelling. And it, it, what's interesting in the Old Testament is you see those type of people portrayed in a positive light sometimes, but also in a negative light. So it kind of goes back and forth there. You know, if you ever want an example of what this is, back and read some of the Old Testament prophetic books. Um, Ezekiel's a good one. That dude had a lot going on. Like, some of these st the sign acts he would do in the street are just outrageous. But it was, it was to get attention. It was to bring attention to this, his message. But that's not what Jesus is doing. 
and I think it hits at another theme we hit on a couple weeks ago. We talked about Jesus' cousin John. What did Jesus call John? Does anyone remember? Elijah, yes. One other thing related to prophecy. Anyone, anyone, anyone? Called John the last prophet. But John is the last prophet. Jesus isn't a prophet. He's the fulfillment of it. There's nothing to prophesy toward. It's, it, it's coming to him. It's kind of just a subtle reminder of that idea that, no, Jesus isn't just a prophet. The prophets are over. John was the last one. Now Jesus is something different, something more. An interesting side here is he doesn't quarrel or cry aloud. He's not out there starting fights. Jesus isn't, you know, starting beef with anyone. He's not aggressively coming in to things. And notice what he does when things get heated in, you know, the opening of this section. He leaves. He's trying to prevent violence, prevent an uprising that he knows is just on a hairline from happening. He pulls away. The clues. He's the mission spreading the good news. Not starting fights. Not starting a revolution. Not arguing. It's a fascinating distinction from what we typically think of what Jesus is doing. Move on. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not quench. All right, bruised reed. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, too. Does anyone remember this one? I feel like I'm pop quizzing everyone this morning. Anyone remember the bruised reed we talked about? Anyone? No, no, no. I brought in a little coin to talk about it. So, uh, the, most people associate the bruised reed with Herod Antipas, who was the current Herod at the time, who was the son of the Herod of the Nativity story. You know, the Herod that tried to kill Jesus, the wise men came to and such. His son is on the throne now. His symbol was a reed. So the coinage that he sent out was a reed. So when we talk about a bruised reed, it's referring to Rome as a whole, and specifically Herod Antipas. All right, now the smoking wick is a, is a different one. When, when does a wick smoke? Like, how does, what does a smoking wick symbolize or represent? Or if, if you light a candle and you see it smoking, what's typically going on? It's about to go out. It's, it's dying. It's just about done. It represents something about to be over. So our author is using kind of these two analogies here to talk about what Jesus is up against. Rome, the idea of Rome. Jesus isn't coming in trying to overthrow Rome, trying to destroy everything Rome's doing right now. That's not what Jesus came to do. Side of the wick is the idea of Rome, the idea of sin, the idea of oppression right now. Jesus isn't coming in to completely destroy that yet. That's not what he's doing yet. I think that's an important distinction here. It's until he brings justice to victory. We're going to get to that soon. The idea of Jesus isn't coming here to destroy everything at this moment. There's still groundwork to do. He still has to do some things before we can get to the point of defeating death. That's coming. And we will get there. If you recall... One of Jesus' most kind of famous scenes that we'll get to much later is on the last couple days of his life, what does he do? He goes into the temple, starts yelling, flipping tables, just calling stuff out. 
That would be the rough equivalent of someone coming in here on like Easter morning and like grabbing the kids' table, throwing it across the room, dropping some F-bombs and leaving. Like that's basically what Jesus does. But not yet. We're going to get to that point. Now this section closes up with, and it is his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's reflect on that a little bit. What, it's in this name that hope will come. What is his name? It's a name that is not out there fighting. It's a name that is not causing an uprising. It's a name that is not engaging arguments with people. It's a name that is loving people. It's a name that is spreading the good news, talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's a name that is avoiding conflict whenever possible. So what are we supposed to do with this? What, what does this passage mean for us? Okay, if the, the, this passage is supposed to be the ideal servant of God, you know, obviously talking about Jesus, but if it's talking about the ideal servant of God, it's something that we should mimic, right? We're called to mimic Jesus. We try to make ourselves, like Christians, that's what literally Christian means, is to be little Christ. We mimic ourselves after Jesus. So let's walk through this first section here. How would you relate? How could you say yourself of these sections here? Do we not fight in terms of faith, in terms of religion? Do we not complain? How does that play in? Now, obviously, crying in the streets, you know, we do a pretty good job. We're not out there with billboards yelling at the streets a lot of times. What if we change that to no one will hear their voice on social media or online? How'd that play in? You know, we could change that to, you know, no one will hear his voice arguing with trolls on Facebook. How does that come in? So what, how do we engage? What are we supposed to be doing? What did Jesus do? Just in this passage. He doesn't actively seek out conflict. He's not actively looking to start a fight. Jesus isn't pursuing arguments. Honestly, if there was someone who would win every single argument, it's Jesus. He could have out-logicked, out-thought, out-presented every argument the Pharisees brought against him. But he didn't always do that. What did he do? He healed. He showed love. He loved people's current situations. He loved their current lives. Worked to improve their lives, their location, their place in society. People on the margins, that's who Jesus was healing to try to bring back in. He preached the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea of loving someone's soul, loving their eternal lives. One of my absolute favorite quotes comes from a book that we had, the, the, the book we read this summer, to some of us, um, by Rebecca Peverett. It's, you cannot argue someone into heaven. 
but you can argue them into walking away from heaven's king. Think about that. That is amazingly powerful. And this is hard because most of us, most of this is coming from a place of love. We want people to hear Jesus, to love Jesus, which is an amazing thing. But we can't be the person that pushes people away from Jesus. When people are asked, you know, why don't you go to church? Why don't you engage in Christianity? The number one reason given is, I don't like Christians. Us in this room is the number one reason why people don't come to church. And that can be hard to realize. So what are we, how do we not do this? What did Jesus do? Love first. Love first. Love people's lives, their situations, and love their souls. We've, we've used this language a lot. Try to love people's right now lives and their forever lives. And it's not seeking out conflict. Now, this is not saying you don't have difficult conversations. This seems to be kind of butting up against one of our seven habits, right? Which is engage in conversations. Move up conversational notches. So this isn't saying you don't have any hard conversations. You always move away. It's about being in conversation with you, the Holy Spirit, and the person you're talking to. Kind of the, the example I thought of, and even when Jesus was sending out the 12, he talks about, hey, if you go to some area and your message isn't being received there, just leave. Just move on to the next spot. For using this gardening analogy, it's very nice to garden in nice, easy soil, right? If you have really hard, rough soil, it's going to take a lot of work to pull things out of it. And maybe nothing will come out of it. But Jesus is saying, hey, if you get to a spot like that, it's okay. Move on. We're not abandoning this. We're not leaving this. We're saying, hey, this isn't ready for me right now. God still has work to do here. I need to go on and find a spot where God is calling me, where God has opened up paths. And a lot of this comes down to a relationship with the Holy Spirit, being able to recognize the Holy Spirit's voice. So think about that, that this week. What are some ways we could exemplify this passage? Be that ideal servant. What are some ways we could model ourselves after this ideal servant? And that'll look very different to everyone. But what are some ways we can point people toward Jesus in loving ways and not push them away from Jesus? This isn't a, you know, default to be jerks for Jesus. I've heard that before as a motto, and that's not what we're called to do. We're called to love. Have conversations, but love primary. Join me as we pray.